morning, church. It's good to be here with you guys today. What a powerful testimony that is of someone who lives in a place where um, it's difficult. There's a lot of persecution. It's hard to follow Jesus, but he takes the tools that God has given him, a taxi cab, um, an SD card that he, he has in a stereo, and he leads people to Jesus. And here we are in the Bible Belt in Tennessee, and um, we have all the tools in the world. There's churches everywhere. We have anything that we want access to at our fingertips, and many people go their lives. Don't lead anybody to Christ. Don't share the gospel with anybody. And um, today we're going to be looking at, at persecution in the early church. And we looked at that when I spoke in, in November uh, in Acts chapter 4. And today we're going to be backtracking in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 5. And um, the reason for that is, is Joel, when he um, preached in Acts chapter 5, he preached verses 1 through 12 on Ananias and Sapphira. And then um, the next week we did, had a deacon ordination, so he went on to chapter 6, where he spoke out of chapter 6. And... Um, we, we skipped about 31 verses there. And so he was going to come back to that, but then he talked to me and he said, hey, the, the Sunday that you preach, can you cover those verses for me? So we're going to try to cover, cover all of that today. And um, I'm here preaching this morning. Joel's not here because he had um, knee replacement surgery. And so you guys be praying for him. He actually snuck in to the early service. He's getting around incredibly well and uh, hopes to be back here with you next Sunday. So if you don't want to hear me next Sunday, then yeah, be praying that that Joel gets well soon so he can be here preaching to you guys next week. But um, the last time uh, we, we looked at Peter and John in, in Acts chapter 4 when persecution came to the early church, when everything was going well, they're arrested, they're told not to speak about Jesus anymore, they're threatened, their lives are threatened. And we saw in Acts chapter 4 verse 19 and 20, Peter and John answer them and say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than, than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then after this, Joel covered this, some of you guys will remember, that after this happened, you see how much they really believe in what they're saying because they didn't try to get out of Jerusalem. It wasn't like they gathered a group to go protest. I'm not saying that there's not a place for that sometimes, but their first reaction to this was to pray. And they prayed for two things specifically. They prayed for boldness to continue sharing the message, and they prayed that God would continue to work through them so that miracles, so that these healings, these things that were being done could continue to be done in Jesus' name. And um, then we see as we go into chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira story, that kind of weird story there. This is really the first time we see impurity and hypocrisy that enters in to the early church. And um, the result of that is, is both of them lose their lives. And uh, then we'll be where we're at today in, in chapter 12, where that ends. So before diving into the text today, though, I want to point out that in Scripture, sometimes you might come across something and you think like this, there's, there's like a seeming contradiction here. Or maybe someone tells you, like it's someone that's not a believer, and they say there's a, there's a contradiction in Scripture right there. Or no, this is what the Bible says about this. And maybe you haven't studied it that much and you're not really sure. Is this what it says? Is this not what it says? You know, you're not for sure about it. Or maybe somebody just quotes something to you or it's, it's just taken out of context. Listen, there's not a contradiction, first of all. Let me say that. But the verse that I'm about to give you you might say, you know, how could anyone believe that there's a contradiction there? Like, what's contradictory about that? It's not so much that it's a contradiction or it might seem like a contradiction. It's that you might think this doesn't really add up with the reality of life. And that verse, a really short verse, is 1 Thessalonians 5.16. And all it says is this, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Today's sermon is that there's always a reason to rejoice. I, um, was here in worship this morning before the first service, and I didn't realize that the band was singing, you know, the first two songs are all about rejoicing and that having joy when times are hard in life. So how does that not add up with, with other things that, 
that Scripture say? Well, it doesn't if you don't know Jesus. But I just want you to hear these, hear these verses. Romans eight seventeen said, If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. And then 2 Timothy three twelve. Paul writes, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So suffering's a guarantee, persecution is a guarantee, and we are told to rejoice always. How can that be compatible? How can that work together? Well, we look at the history and the spread of Christianity and the church and missions, there's many followers of Christ who could have easily been asking themselves the same thing. Joel preached about Stephen a few weeks ago, who is forgiving the people that are stoning him, right? Same deal when Jesus was on the cross. He's following the example of Jesus, forgiving them as this is happening. Um, in, in the second century, we see one of the early church fathers, Polycarp, who was told to denounce Christ or to be burned at the stake. And he, just a beautiful quote. He said, 80 and six years I have served him. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? We look at the early church, at the persecution they face under the emperor Nero, who would feed Christians to lions. He would use Christians, their carcasses, to light the fire, light human torches, to have garden parties. And still today, as we're going to see later, there's Christians all around the world that are facing terrible suffering and persecution in the name of Jesus. Last summer, I was traveling to the Philippines, and I was, I was reading a book on the plane, and uh, I had to take the book and give it to Stanton to let him read this chapter. But it was about a man named um, Adoniram Judson, and uh, many of you have probably heard of him, many of you have not, but um, Adoniram is considered the father of the American Baptist missionary movement, so pretty important guy. But he served in Burma for four decades. He's the one that translated the Bible, the Bible into the Burmese language. And um, his, his wife, Anne, was the first American female missionary to be sent. And um, Adoniram saw that hardships and the persecution were a reality of what he was going to be doing, of going into the foreign mission field. And so when he asked Anne's dad to marry, to marry him, um, he had some uh, pretty hard questions that he, asked, that he asked the dad. And so I want to read you guys his letter um, to Anne's dad. And, and if you are your dad in here this morning and you have a daughter, think about how you might respond if this is the way that uh, a man asks if, if um, he can marry your daughter. The letter starts out like this. Mr. Hasseltine, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India. That's where he thought he was going before he ended up going to Burma. To every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. He wrote this letter January 1st, 1811, and I'm not sure if there was a response letter, but um, he did get married to Anne, and um, they left in 1812 uh, to go be missionaries in Burma. Now, when I asked Joel if I could marry Kelsey, that was the, the one question I got out, and then he talked pretty much the rest of the time during that meeting, and I imagine if I would have said something like this, he would have told me to get lost and probably leave the state of Tennessee and not see her ever again. But... But in all reality, and I'm not saying this to brag on myself because this wasn't, this wasn't me then. I wasn't a man who was, was sold out for Christ. Um, but if, if a man who is sold out for Christ 
said something even like this. Wanted to marry your daughter? The marriage will be better and more glorifying to God than if a millionaire asked to marry your daughter that has the, the nicest house, the best boat, everything in the eyes of the world, but he doesn't know Jesus. So if we continue to look at the lives of Adoniram and Ann Judson, how did it turn out? So surely there's a, there's a happy ending to this, right? Depends on who you ask. So um, they lived in Burma. They suffered living in Burma. To say that they suffered persecution would be the understatement of the day, but they labored there for 10 years, 1812 to 1822. They saw 18 people in those 10 years, 18 Burmese people who were saved. In 1824, war broke out between the British and uh, the native Burmese people. And because of Adoniram's skin color, they thought he must be a British spy. And so he was thrown into, into prison. Um, these prisons, these Burmese prisons, were 40 feet by 30 feet, 5 feet high. And they would contain about 100 people stuffed in there. The people were starving to death, and most of them um, were naked. Very few of them had anything on them. They had 14 pounds of chains around their ankles and their legs. At night, Adoniram be hung upside down to a bamboo pole. And remember, it's five feet, so it's his shoulders that are resting on the ground. And um, he said that the flesh that would come off because of the chains on his feet and on his ankles and on his legs, that mosquitoes would just eat at that, th- eat at that throughout the night, making them miserable. His wife would come and bribe the guards to, to give um, her husband food. She was pregnant at the time. She was pregnant before he went into prison. And um, when h- the new daughter was 21 days old, she brought the little girl to see her dad for the first time. Later on, Anne and, and the daughter both became infected with smallpox and spotted fever. Um, she convinced the prison guards, because of how sick she was, to let her husband out and let the husband help find a woman, a Burmese woman, to nurse um, their, their little girl. So the, the soldiers walked him through the town, and they helped find someone to nurse the little girl. He was thrown back into prison. He spent 21 months, so almost two years there. The last three weeks, Anne didn't come visit. She had been coming and visiting all the time. And so he didn't know if she was alive still. So he got out. When he got out of prison... To go to the home, he didn't know if she, he'd find her alive or dead. And it says that um, as he approached, he writes that, that he walks in, he looks, and he thought it was a little girl lying in his bed because she was so small. She had suffered from spotted fever and cerebral meningitis. Um, she survived for a time, but she later died that year at the age of 37. Six months later, his little girl um, passed away. He had no joy. He's trying to follow Jesus. He feels like there's no fruit to show from it. Um, he'd been tortured repeatedly. His wife was gone. He'd lost multiple children because she had had miscarriages before that. And uh, so at this time, he disappeared into the jungle for a period of months where he was a, he was a hermit. He had actually uh, uh, had lots of um, possessions back in the States. He graduated from Brown University, had a period in his life when he actually um, wasn't sure what he believed, and um, that's another story. But uh, he, he wrote a letter to the missions board, said, give it all away. He didn't, he didn't want it. He also wrote at that time in his life that he, he wanted to die. He dug a grave for himself there, and he said, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. It was in this place of despair that um, God met Adoniram where he was at, and he was, he was pulled out of that and um, continued to live. He wrote later in his life, there's a love that never fails. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. 
And so for time's sake, I won't get into all the details of his life. He did later on in life remarry to a woman who lost her husband on the mission field. They had eight kids, and three of them died when they were children. Later on, this second wife would die. So he lost at least five kids that we know about and um, two wives serving in Burma. Um, At the end of his life, though, he was able to see about 7,000 people who were baptized into the church and 63 congregations that were started by 163 missionaries and native pastors. Today, Burma, which is now uh, Myanmar, the Myanmar Baptist Convention has more than 600,000 members and 3,500 churches, 35 plus, 3,500 plus churches, and all of them can find their origin that Adoniram and Ann Judson were faithful to God's call to go to Burma. But how can a person find joy in such suffering? And as we jump into Acts 5, today's message, it's, it's titled Always a Reason to Rejoice. Um, and that really comes from one verse, and it's Acts 5.41, which we'll look at here at the end. But um, let's go ahead and start in verse 12. And the, and, and the first reason that we have a reason to, to rejoice always, we can rejoice always, we can rejoice when everything is good. We can rejoice when everything is good. And it's like, well, yeah, of course you can. But for a lot of us here, life is, is really good considering all things. Considering what I just shared with you, maybe you're like, my life's a lot better than I thought it was when I walked in here this morning. But we can find little things in life like to complain about that keep us from Christ. It might seem like a really big thing at the time, but it keeps us from having Christ, the main thing, the center of all things. But we have reason to rejoice, and the apostles had reason to rejoice too. They had reason to rejoice. They they were arrested. They were let go. They prayed for boldness. They prayed... um, they prayed that they would be able to continue to do signs and wonders in the name of Jesus, and God granted this. Verse 12, reading through verse 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. So these guys, they've been arrested. They've been told, shut up about Jesus. My button just came undone. Sorry about that. Okay. That didn't happen in the first service. That wasn't part of the plan. All right, so they've been told to stop talking about Jesus, and uh, they prayed that God would, would help them, that he would allow them to continue to be witnesses for them, and they were faithful um, to what Christ had told them. He had told them to be my witnesses, and they were faithful in doing this, and God continued to use them and continued to work through them in this. And so they'd meet at the temple. Um, some of your translations might say Solomon's porch. They'd meet in this open space where lots of people could gather. They'd share the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and um, they would call people to repentance and faith in Christ. And then miracles were being done through them. And people had faith and believed that stuff would be done so much that some of them believed that if they even could walk in Peter's shadow, they would be healed. So I want to stop there for a second because there's, there's nothing um, in Peter's shadow that was in itself just, just holy or, or had healing power. But um, God can heal in different ways. And, and perhaps people were walking by a shadow and they were being healed. Um, we see in, in Luke eight forty four the woman that touches Jesus' garment, just the hem of his robe, and she's healed. We see later on in Acts chapter 19, the handkerchief that Paul had. People believe that the healing was coming from that. But what this ultimately is, is, is it's the faith that people have in God and God's power at work through the Holy Spirit that's been given to the apostles to affirm that they are indeed the apostles of Christ. And so that's what was providing healing. 
Now, there was a, two verses that I read in there, verse 13 and 14. I talked about contradictions. You might have seen me read this. I don't want to skip over this and thought that seems like a contradiction. Because verse 13 says, none of the rest dared join them, uh, but the people held them in high esteem. And then verse 14 says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. What we see here is two different groups of people. It's not a contradiction. It's two different groups of people. And the first group is those who saw miracles done. They wanted to see things done, just like, just like with Jesus. They wanted to see more and more done, but they wouldn't fellowship with the believers. They wouldn't join them. Um, they wouldn't go and worship with them or pray with them or be a part of them. Why is this? They knew about what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. They knew how serious it was to commit to Christ. They saw people that were giving everything to follow Jesus. They realized how big of a deal it was. And so, although it, it says they held them of high esteem, so they respected them. They saw that th- these were people that had integrity. But there was also this fear at play that was like, you know, you don't just casually join this body. You don't just casually join this church. Because joining the church and following Jesus changed everything for people. It wasn't like, you know, you ask somebody where they go to church, and it's like, oh, yeah, I, I go to church over here, and, and maybe they, you know, they go there once a month or something like that. It, it, it was a serious life change because of what Christ was doing in their lives. It was the greatest commitment someone could have. So people weren't just casually committing to that, but they did respect them. They did respect the ones that were because they saw their integrity. They saw the way they lived. And, and I don't think that people are, that are affiliated uh, or that n- are not affiliated with the church here in the Bible Belt or in East Tennessee, that they look at the church and they see it like that. How, how do they see it? They see it as hypocrites, right? That, you, you hear that. Somebody's kind of hostile towards the church. They see it as hypocrites. And in a way, um, sometimes there's, there's some stuff that's wrong about that. Like somebody could look at, say, well, look at what Clark did and then look at what he's doing now. He's preaching. Those people are listening to him. But God's changed me, given me a new, new heart, saved me by grace, right? Um, and so there is some things in our life because we do have sin and we do have flesh that looks like it's hypocritical, but there's also some validity to it because people do just kind of casually go to church. A lot of people show up at church and, and their lives have not been changed. There's nothing that's been changed about their lives. Uh, they just went to church when they were young. It's kind of like a social club. Their grandparents went to church. Their parents went to church. And so they go to church. And so there's some validity sometimes to what's being said but there's, because there's no desire to live out the new life as a new creation, dead to your old self and committed to the cause of Christ. And so people weren't all excited about like, yeah, I'll join the church. They were excited about seeing the miracles, but they weren't excited about that. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus tells his followers, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so the people in darkness, even today, the people in darkness, there's not something that says like, I want fellowship with the light. That I want fellowship with those who are walking in truth. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 tells us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Sometimes you might um, hear that verse talked about maybe at a wedding or something or uh, maybe in like marriage counseling um, that, that um, you're supposed to be married, to, a believer's supposed to be married to a believer. But it really, it's like all Christian, all relationships, all fellowship. Um, it says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? John three nineteen. Jesus said, this is the judgment, light has come into the world, the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So if unbelievers don't want to join the church, they don't want to join in your fellowship. With you as a follower of Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us. That shouldn't be a surprise because there's a certain fellowship, a relationship that only can exist among believers. That's just the truth. So the people didn't join, but it says that they respected them. They respected them. They knew they had integrity. They knew that 
they weren't hypocrites, that they were serious about what they were doing. And um, they saw how serious they were about their faith and about following Jesus. And so the outside world should look at the church today in the same light. In some places in the world, it really does. And here, here in East Tennessee, I feel like it, it doesn't. But um, the outside world should look at the church and say, like, you know, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. That's an honest person. That's a person that has integrity. That's a person that you could trust because we're called to live differently. Verse 14 says that people were joining them, though. So they, they, there's this group of people. They weren't joining them. And then there's others that says they were joining them. This is a different group. This is multitudes of men and women who were being saved, who were being regenerated, who were receiving the Holy, the Holy Spirit, born again, new believers, new lives, following after Christ. In verse 16, it goes on and it says that people were even coming from outside of Jerusalem to be healed of diseases and of unclean spirits. And this is the first mention of the word spreading outside of Jerusalem because people are hearing about it. Now in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, people took the word outside of Jerusalem, but people were coming to Jerusalem because of what they were hearing. And so people are coming to Jerusalem to hear the apostles and to see these healings. But Jesus commanded the apostles to go. He said go to Jerusalem, but he also said go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of, ends of the earth. And we saw, uh, as Joel preached through Acts chapter 8, where that started to happen, but it didn't happen until the persecution started to ramp up. So at this time, things are good. The apostles are just out of jail. Um, the church is growing. Miracles are happening. And then more pushback comes. And so the second point is when adversity comes. Can, can we rejoice? Can we have joy when we face adversity in life? Verse 17 and 18 says, The high priest rose up, all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So maybe you're the, you're the kind of person that you do feel joy. You feel that relationship with Christ when things are good and then things get hard and all you can focus on is the thing that's hard. You just focus on the problem and you lo- lose that joy. Some people are more the opposite. It's like things are good and they're just kind of going with the flow of the world and then something bad happens and they, in that moment they seek Christ. It should be in, in every moment, right? But um, this is the second time for these men in Acts that they've been imprisoned. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, 4, verse 3, we saw that they were also arrested and in prison. One thing about this previous experience, though, is that they saw God at work in their lives. They were following him. They saw him at work, and so it gave them confidence. It gave them faith in how things would work out this time. Because when you've seen God at work, it provides you a sense of confidence. It helps you grow when you face times of trials. James 1, 2, and 3, James writes, Count it all joys, my brother, all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So here we see the apostles. They're facing a second arrest from the same group. Verse 17 says that they were full of jealousy. They were jealous. It's the Sanhedrin, the, the highest court of the land. For, for religious matters. Of course, they're under Roman occupation. But um, you have the Sadducees who were jealous. They, these apostles, they don't have the same training. These are former fishermen, right? And they have all these people coming to see them. They were gaining popularity. They didn't have formal training. They lacked education. And yet, they're this popular. And so they viewed these men as a real threat to the religious establishment. And just like they, this is what they viewed Jesus as as well. They viewed him as a threat. They're under occupation from Rome, and they have authority that's given to them over religious matters. And they're, they're worried that if something gets a little bit, you know, out of the way they want it to go, that they could lose that authority that's been given to them by Rome. They didn't want to do anything that would upset them or cause them to lose any power. And so they see the rise of Christianity. Of course, it wasn't even called that at the moment. It was, it was the way. But they see this rise and this 
you know, sect of Judaism that people are calling it, and they think it's defiant to both their authority, that it's defiant to their theology and what they believe and what they hold true. Verse 19 says, During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I think it's kind of ironic here, maybe not, maybe not ironic at all, but um, that the Sadducees who do not believe in angels, it's an angel that is sent to let them out of prison. And so the angel gets them out of prison in the middle of the night, and it's a perfect opportunity to escape Jerusalem, right? Nobody sees what's going on, perfect opportunity to get out of there, but the angel doesn't say, get out of here, go for the hills. Um, the angel doesn't say, go rally as many people you can, let the injustice that's been done to you, make it known. What the angel tells them is go to the most dangerous place you could possibly go and continue to proclaim the words that got you in trouble and put you in this position to begin with. Go proclaim the words of life, abundant life, eternal life, the new life that they had in Jesus. Go speak these words again. You know, I always try to listen when um, it's like I'm in Market Square or, or just anywhere, and I hear someone that's preaching on the street. And maybe some of you guys have, have done that or have handed out tracts or something, and maybe others of you, I run into people, um, or I've, I've been out even with other people that are believers, and they'll usually, I've, and I've heard things like this, why, why are they doing that? They're just making people hate Christianity. Why, why are they doing that? Nobody's going to get saved like that. And a lot of times, the person that says it has never once in their life led someone to Christ, and has never shared the gospel with someone. And so I'm not saying that all street preachers, what they're doing is good. Sometimes the message is, antith- um, is, is antithetical with what Scripture says. It's not right. But I think we should be good Bereans. And if you see someone that's handing out a track, I always take the track. I read it to see if what it says is true. If you hear someone preaching on the street, see if what they're saying is true. And have some respect that that person is willing to do what we see in Acts over and over and over and bring the true gospel message of faith and repentance and if that is the message that they are bringing and someone rejects that or you're like well people are just getting mad at that darkness is going to get mad at that that's what we see we see it over and over not everybody's going to receive that message well and so here's another thing to see here is that the angel did not come just to rescue them so that they could go back to, to Galilee so that they could start a new fishing business so that they could save some money, spend time with their families and just have a life kind of quiet away from everything. He saved them for a purpose. This angel saved them for a purpose. The, present, the prison rescue was for a purpose. It was so that they could continue in the work that God had called them to do. They were called to continue out the work that Jesus commanded them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to go to be witnesses. And in the same way, if you're here today and you were set free from sin, you were not set free from sin so that you can say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. Yeah, when I die, I'm going to heaven. You're saved with a purpose. And the purpose is fulfilling the kingdom of God. The purpose is being light in a dark world. The purpose is getting uncomfortable by dying to ourselves and living out the new life that we have as followers of Christ. And so when they head back to the temple... To preach, you know, maybe they're thinking like, this, this has got us in jail every time. How is this going to be any different? Is this what we're supposed to do? But the answer was yes, because they were set free for a purpose, and it was not merely to live for themselves. They prayed for boldness, and God granted them this boldness, and then he afforded them an opportunity to put that boldness on display for Jesus. The second part of verse 21, it says, Now when the high priest came... And those who were with him, they called together the council and the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. 
But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would come, what this would come to. So they get together in the morning, they're ready to move forward. What's next? We gotta stop this message. We gotta stop the spread of this message. We gotta stop these men. We're gonna go to the prison. We're gonna get them. Something's going down. And they go and they're not there. And then this report that comes next would have shocked them more. They, they see the jail's locked. They see the prison guards are still there. If they escape, then surely they've, they're, they're long gone. But in verse 25, someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple, the, t- the temple, not the temple, in the temple and teaching the people. There we go. All right. And then it says in verse 26, the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the religious leaders, they didn't care that it seemed like a, a miraculous escape. Like, that, that didn't matter to them. They wanted them gone. And so they don't bring them by force this time. Um, a third time, they bring them in. And um, they don't bring them by force, though, because the reason is that they're worried that people would riot. They're worried that rioting might happen. And remember, they, they don't want to cause any unrest. Um, they love the authority that they have that Rome gave them. But you have people. Why would rioting occur? Because you have people that think that the shadow of one of these guys could save their life. You have people that think the shadow of one of these guys could heal them. And so if you've got people that are that invested, that have come to receive healing, and then you have these Sadducees that, honestly, people did not like already. They knew they were crooks. They knew they were ripping them off. They knew that they were in, um, that they were in with uh, the Roman leadership, and so they didn't like them. And so you see these guys come and, and pull them off and do it by force. It could cause some serious rioting if somebody's life was on the line, and they thought, all i got to do is get to that guy's shadow, and I can be healed. So they bring him in, though, a third time. The, the apostles, they go in voluntarily to speak to them. Verse 27 says, when they brought them, they set, before, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Notice the, the smug attitude there, though. They won't even say the name of Jesus, right? They, they say, his name, this man's blood, won't even mention Jesus. But there's two, two other things that I want us to notice from these verses. And, and the first thing is that they say, we told you not to speak about Jesus, and you're filling Jerusalem with this teaching or this doctrine. Well, people say that about us. They say the people at, church, at the church at Turkey Hills, they're filling their communities with the truth of the gospel. They are sharing the gospel. They're filling Knoxville with truth. This is, this is a compliment, quite a compliment to them, really, because their teacher, Jesus, told them to be witnesses and to bring the gospel to Jerusalem first, right? And they're saying, you're filling the streets with this teaching, and that's absolutely what they were doing. So it was really quite a compliment that they were doing what they had been instructed to do by God. Secondly, they say to him, you're intending to bring this man's blood Jesus' blood upon us. And this accusation is also true. This, is some, this was, was being preached by Peter. It was a true accusation. Um, the apostles knew what was coming. They knew persecution was coming, but they were determined to preach Christ and Christ crucified regardless. In Acts 3.15, Peter said, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. See, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 23 and 36, in Acts chapter 4, verse 10, all these places, it's the same kind of message. This message is being proclaimed. 
But what's interesting about the accusation that you want to bring this man's blood upon us is it is the very thing, if you look back in the Gospels, is the very thing that they ask for. They ask for this. Matthew 27, 24, and 25, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but, the, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And the people, this is the Jewish people, they've been, you know, it's a mob, they're in a frenzy, and it's because the religious leaders were giving them this message. The people answered, his blood be on us and our children. And so you have these leaders that were asking for responsibility, his blood on us and our children, just weeks, months before this episode right here happened, and now they're saying, you're trying to bring his blood on us. It's almost like a politician that says, like, I never said that, but there's video of everything, and you absolutely said it, right? And so that's where they're at right now. And so Peter's response here in verse 29 is amazing. He says, all he says is this, we must obey God rather than men. They don't defend themselves. They don't plead for mercy. They don't deny that this is what actually happened. It's just like a matter of a fact explanation that he gives of why they're continuing to do what they told them not to do. That this is what God has told us to do, and so we have to keep doing it. And when I talked back in November in Acts chapter 4, I mentioned that we, we are called to submit to governing authorities. That's the truth. We, we are called to, but until it means disobedience to God. Because ultimately, when you submit to governing authorities, you are submitting to God. And so if governing authorities are telling you to do something that is against what God has taught you to do, we have to follow Christ. Peter and the apostles, they, they cared about what God said. But the council, they cared about what people thought. They, call, they cared about power. How about you guys? How about me? How about us? Do we care about what our friends say, the news says, what coworkers say, what social media says? A lot of times now, especially young people, like what my feelings say, I let that guide and direct my decisions, how I feel. What about what God says? What about what God says? With so many opinions, so much influence, so many self-help books and, and advice, there's still one God, and ultimately what he says is really all that matters. So often, what matters more to us, though, is acceptance of people, validation from our peers, and then it leads, what that leads to is this road of confusion and disobedience. What, what about what God thinks about your decisions? Do you care? Do you, do you care just a little bit? Or do you care like to where, no, that shapes the way that I live my life and every little or big decision that I make? And And... Peter cared about what God said, and that's why he's able, regardless of the outcome, to double, to triple down on this message. In verse 30, he says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So remember, he had lots of bold claims. Every time he talks, he has lots of bold claims. These bold claims here that Jesus... The Christ, the man you crucified, he was raised. That, that Jesus, who you crucified, he's leader and savior, ruler and savior, Lord and savior, depending on your translation. And he's at the right hand of the Father. Um, Jesus, the man you crucified. Israel, it's not because of their bloodline that they have forgiveness of sins. It's through Jesus. He's the one. He's where repentance comes from. He's the one that can forgive sins, which, which by the way, is something that only God can do. And so each of these claims are extremely important claims vital to the Christian faith. And Peter was an eyewitness to these events along with the other apostles and he says along with the Holy Spirit. 
And this is a reason, if you're a believer here this morning, this is a reason for you to have confidence in your faith. The crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, it's a reliable story told by reliable witnesses um, who shared their testimony, eyewitness testimony, and ultimately suffered terribly for it. Not to gain something in this world. Towards the end of Peter's life, he wrote in 2 Peter 1 through 6, 1, 16 through 18, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's speaking um, of the transfiguration at this point. He's, he's speaking uh, when he went up the mountain with Jesus, and, and Moses and Elijah are there, and he he's, has no idea what to say. And he says, like, it's good for us to be here. Let's make tents for all of you. And God's like, shut up, stop talking, listen to Jesus. So he's speaking of this moment. He was a witness. He saw the things that Jesus did. And now here he is in the face of great resistance, and he didn't back down. It doesn't take a lot of resistance that we face to back down sometimes or to say, like, yeah, yeah, just, you know, I'm not going to say anything or, you know, I don't want to cause any problems. We have to be willing to confront those, though, who would silence us. That's, that's what Peter did. That's what the apostles did. They were willing even to confront those. Of course, they were brought in. They would stand up and be bold for those who could do them harm. And Peter's message here, it's almost the same thing that he said, as we saw in chapter 2, that Jesus is alive, that um, they're witnesses to this and the Holy Spirit as well, um, that he, he briefly shared here the core ideas of who Jesus was, that he, was, that he died for us on the cross, that um, salvation was only through Christ, that that's how he could receive forgiveness of sins. And then we see how they respond here. Because in chapter 2, you remember the response was, they were cut to the heart and they say, what must we do? What must we do? And, and many that day are saved. And here we see a different response. And not everyone you share the gospel with is going to respond the same. Not everyone's going to respond positively and, and not everyone's going to respond the same. Here's the response in verse 33. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. A little bit different response. This is the same response, same word you see when Stephen, Joel, Joel spoke about Stephen, Stephen a couple weeks ago when he was stoned to death. They grinded their teeth like they were mad, they were enraged. Same kind of rage here. They wanted to kill them. They probably thought, who are you to tell us that we need to repent? We're, we're more well-trained, we're, we're smarter, we're holier. And it's the same today. It's the same today. There might be people that get angry, even violent, in a lot of places in the world at the preaching of the gospel. And that's because the spirit of the age does not accept the things of God. You know, not everyone is going to receive the truth gladly. Some people are going to say, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Not understanding the difference between unrighteous judgment, discernment, and a warning in proclaiming the written truth of God's word and love, which if, if you're a student that comes to youth, you should understand that because Stanton talked about it out of Romans chapter 2 on Wednesday. So if you're here and you have a student that doesn't come to youth, they need to come to youth on Wednesday. That's my, that's my plug there for youth ministry. Um, but, but some people call you names, will insult you, they'll hiss at you, they'll hate you for telling them the truth of God's word, the truth of repentance, the truth of turning to a savior, the truth of a God who, who loves them and wants to save them because it requires a response. 
It requires a response. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's, it's set in motion here. We killed their leader, we're going to kill them too. It's set into motion that we'll, we'll kill them just like we killed Jesus, we'll get rid of them. Because they couldn't contend with the truth, they only would result to force. And we, we showed the video there at the beginning. This is the case throughout much of the world today. Much of this goes unnoticed because it's, it happens a lot in countries that the media doesn't really care about, doesn't care about covering. Um, that that um, organization, Global Christian Relief, I would encourage you to download uh, their app and you can read about things that are going on because you're not going to see it in mainstream, um, in mainstream news. But here's some numbers. 365 million Christians face very high or extreme levels of persecution. Last year, last year alone, 4,998 Christians were murdered for their faith. Last year, 14,766 churches and Christian properties were attacked. Last year, 4,125 Christians were detained. One in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide. One in five in Africa, two in five or 40% in Asia. Here's the way it looks in some of these different countries. In India, specifically in, the, in Manipur, over 200 churches were burned and 66,000 places displaced last year. In other Indian states, churches are under attack. Pastors are being arrested. You can see videos of Hindu nationalists planting flags on top of crosses, going into churches. I've been in a place where people have come and said, stop playing the music, stop playing the instruments. Very mild persecution to what a lot of people face. I talked to a pastor in India. Um, He's telling me about 60 pastors that were arrested just recently for preaching the gospel. In Afghanistan, the Taliban, it searches for hidden networks of believers where Christians can be arrested, interrogated, or killed, going into homes. In Iran, churches are viewed as a threat to national security. Pastors that are found out will face 10 years in prison. In Sudan, where there's civil war, Christians are the most vulnerable people. It's a, it's a Muslim nation. Christians are the most vulnerable. And so believers are attacked, their properties looted, and churches are closed. In Pakistan, Christians are considered second-class citizens. False accusations of blasphemy lead to mob violence against believers. Christian girls are abducted all the time and forced to convert to Islam and forced into uh, marriages. In Nigeria, more Christians are killed for their faith than all the other countries combined. Pastor Zechariah, he returned home one day to find his village completely destroyed and his wife and his son murdered. Maybe some of you guys did see about this, but um, on Christmas Eve... Just last month, there were militants in Nigeria. Um, they attacked this village on Christmas Eve and killed around 150 believers. Pastor Ezekiel Regit, he went to the church to pray when this was going on. They burned the church, burned it to the ground with him in it. They found his body with him holding his Bible. In Yemen, you must worship in secret. Pastors are placed on wanted list, and they risk their lives to continue to have church in their homes. In Eritrea, Christian activities are restricted. Evangelizing leads to prison, where conditions are so terrible, it's very unlikely that anyone comes out alive. In Libya, believers who tell others about Jesus, they are faced with arrest and violent opposition. Somalia, a heavy Islamic society like many of these are, even if there's suspicion that you're a Christian, it could cost you your life. In North Korea, owning a Bible is, is illegal. And so if you're a parent, you own a Bible, they'll take you from your kids. Kid, they'll take you from your parents. You'll never see them again. Never see them again. They'll put you in labor camps or you'll be killed on the spot. This is 11 of 44 countries in the world that are restricted to Christians. It's not a new thing, though. 
So we look at the text. They killed Jesus. Eventually, they killed the apostles. It's a reality. John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, keep your, they will also keep yours. So back to our text. They can't contend with Peter. They want him dead. But a Pharisee, a Pharisee here named Gamaliel, I can't say, I say his name for the life of me. When I actually try to say it how I say it, I sound extremely redneck, and so I'm going to try not to do that. I asked Joel, how do you say it? And he's got it down. He says it right. Gamaliel. All right, so a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel... Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. This time I mentioned the Sadducees. They're the dominating group. They're the ones that are political collaborators with Rome. But the people did not respect them. The people did not care for them at all. It's said that the Sadducees, though, in public, they wouldn't turn on the Pharisees because the people did have some respect for the Pharisees. And Gamaliel, he was, a, he was a Pharisee, but not just a Pharisee. He was called Rabon, which um, means master teacher or our teacher. It was, it was like a step above rabbi. He's known as being one of the greatest teachers ever in Judaism. He's the grandson of the great Halil, who founded one of Israel's strongest religious schools. And for the Christians, maybe you, you've heard the name, he's more familiar with being the mentor of the Apostle Paul when Paul was in Judaism. Paul wrote in Acts 20, 22.3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel points out to the Sanhedrin that, you know, there were men before these men. They were revolutionists. He mentions a, a man named Theudas. He mentions another name named Judas of Galilee that kind of rose up. And around this time, Rome was occupying, um, Rome occupied Jerusalem there were many rebel leaders who rose up, and some of them had kind of messianic overtones that like, oh, this might be the Messiah. The um, historian Josephus wrote that 10,000 men in that time, different rebel leaders rose up trying to lead revolutions that led to nowhere. And so Gamaliel is pointing this out. He mentions a, a man named Judas from Galilee. Judas of Galilee, um, he in AD 6 encouraged the Israelites, the Jewish people, not to give tribute to pagan rulers like, like the Romans. It, it didn't turn out well for him. And so he's saying, like, if these men are like these other men, this is going to fizzle out. We killed their leader. Like, don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. But if they're from God, you won't stop it. It's going to be successful no matter what you do. And here we are 2,000 years later. Christianity, I would say I would argue, but I think it's actually a matter of a fact has had the greatest impact for good on the world than anything. It's impacted human rights, moral reforms, women's rights, civil rights, democracy in the West, um, the building of hospitals, orphanages, 
the, uh, fi- the fight against poverty, um, Protestant missionaries have been placed in different countries and played key roles in um, moral reforms in those countries. A couple um, enacting laws to ban prepubescent marriage, enacting laws to keep from um, female genital mutilation. That might sound crazy. In Kenya, there's on the walls in some of the schools, it, it's teaching kids this is a bad thing. It's part of Protestant missionaries being there. Um, in India, widow burning, foot binding in China. There's been Christian missionaries that have played a part in these things ending. And we, we could have a whole sermon just on that. But here we are 2,000 years later and we see the growth of the church and what's that, what that's looked like. And it's an incredible. And, and it's, it's incredible even though Jesus told us that this was going to happen. But here's the thing though. Gamaliel's advice, it wasn't really good advice. Yeah, they wouldn't stop it if it was from God. But here's the thing, it's actually pretty bad advice. Because just because something is successful in the eyes of the world doesn't mean that that thing is true. It doesn't mean that that thing is good. Right? Islam, you could look at it in the eyes of the world and say it's successful. Mormonism, in the eyes of the world, they've done a lot. You could say that's successful. But that's not how we evaluate the validity of something or if something is true. As the wisest man in Jerusalem at that time, you would think that he would say, let's go to the text, let's go to the Torah, let's go to our scrolls and see if what they are saying is true. And if it is, we should probably listen to them. We should see if we've, we've, we've made a mistake here. But instead he, he says, you know, let's, let's see if it, it, it pans out or not. But nonetheless, he had influence with the Sanhedrin and they listened to him. And they didn't kill him at that time. For us today... How do we determine if something's true? Go to God's word. It's the same thing. Not if it's successful or not. Go to God's word. So they're facing serious adversity. They can still have joy in that. And then really the reason the sermon's titled, titled what it is is from this third point is that we can, we can rejoice. We can always rejoice even when it makes no sense at all. Even when it doesn't make sense, we can rejoice. Acts 5, 40 through 42, it says, When they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them to not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Again, this is, this is really why I titled the sermon this because of that verse, verse 41. I, um, I was talking to Stan and he's like, you could just go up there and read that verse and then just leave because that verse is so powerful. And maybe you guys would have liked that better. It would have saved you the last 45 minutes. But, like, that verse is so powerful. They counted themselves worthy. Like, like we're rejoicing because we're counted worthy that we could suffer for the name of Jesus. So here we are. The Sanhedrin talks about it. They decide not to kill him. They say, well, let's discourage them. We'll discourage them with what? We'll beat them. This isn't a light beating. This is a flogging. This is 39 lashes. Another word for that is skinned. I mean, skin in their backs. This is something that people could die from. But rather than discouraging them, strengthen them. They rejoiced in it. It's incredible. They've been in prison twice. They've been arrested three times at this point. Multiple times they've been threatened. They've been beaten. And they rejoice that they are worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. The, the pain and shame that was attempted in that moment, it did no good. They kept on preaching with boldness and the church grew. Peter wrote, wrote later in his life 
1 Peter 3.14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. It echoes the words of his teacher, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How could they rejoice? If someone who's not a believer reads this, I mean, it makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. And some believers even fall into to this of thinking that if they're suffering, if there's persecution, or if anything's wrong, that it must be because you're not in God's will or you're not following the Lord the way that you're supposed to. But we see lots of times in Scripture that it seems to be the opposite. Now, I, I don't know what everyone's going through this morning, but I know that you're going through something. There's something going on in your life. Maybe you're, maybe you're in that season of joy, but it seems like that you're just kind of going going through the motions. Maybe you're in that season of adversity or it's like you're focused on that. You're not really focused on Christ the way that you should be. Or maybe you're in that season where it just seems like something's terrible, something terrible has happened and it feels like it's hard to rejoice. I know this, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you have something to to have joy in. You have a reason to rejoice. The ultimate reason we have to rejoice is this, it's found in Romans 5, 8, and elsewhere in scripture, that God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were lost, hopeless, but Jesus made a way so that we can be called sons and daughters of the living God. And that's reason to rejoice. That's something to rejoice in. You guys bow your heads with me this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like, I can't have joy because I don't think I know that God. Maybe you've been in church. Maybe, maybe you haven't. Maybe this, somebody just invited you and you, you haven't been in church throughout your life, but it feels like, how could I have joy in those kind of circumstances? There's one way and it's in Christ who made a way for us to have eternal life. The Bible says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And, and it tells us that the penalty for our sin is death. It's an eternal death separated from God, but there's a free gift, and that gift is eternal life in Jesus. And that gift is given to those who believe, to those who place their faith in Christ. The Bible says those who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, children who were born by a new spirit, who were made alive to walk with God, to live a new purpose, to live for his kingdom. You can receive that right now. Look, there's, there's not a magic prayer to receive that. It's from your heart. It, it, it has to be what your heart says. If you feel the Holy Spirit, if you feel him working on you right now, and you feel like I haven't received that in my life, I don't have joy in my life because I don't have Christ in my life, I wanna give you the opportunity to respond to that right now. Just say, Lord, I confess that I've sinned against you I confess that I've gone my own way, but I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God, that you died for me, that you rose again. Just come into my life right now. Make me a new person. I want to live for you. I want to live for you. Give me your spirit. Today, I I confess that you you are my Savior and you are my Lord. Redeem me, cleanse me, and make me new. And if you're here today and you are, a follower of Jesus, I just want to pray for you too. Maybe you feel like that you're in this season of life 
or you just, you don't have joy. And, and, and God, I just lift them up to you. And I pray, God, that those who are here and they're struggling and they're, they're going through life and, and they're struggling and it just seems like, where is the joy in this? That they would be able to look to you. They would be able to always rejoice because of the cross, because of what you've done for them, because they can have abundant life, they can have eternal life no matter what the world says to them, no matter what they're going through, but because you love them and you love us first and you made a way, God, and we praise you for that and we rejoice in that today. It's in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.